Does the media have a bias against people of faith, and in particular Christians? Well, let me ask another question. Does a fish need water? How about this one? Does Joy Reid deserve to be working at a Wendy's rather than in the mainstream media? But after police said the suspect was transgender, one thing is clear. Tennessee's already under siege transgender community is terrified. I hope the answer is clear. When a trans person goes into a Christian school and kills six Christians, three of them small children, and people like Joy Reid think the big story is trans hate, how can you take these people seriously? Hopefully you don't, but just to assure you that they are fully untrustworthy and in cahoots with one side of the political aisle, I point you to the fact that Merrick Garland refused to investigate the Nashville shooting as a hate crime. Do you plan on opening a hate crime investigation for the targeting of Christians? No thanks, no time. But when one Palestinian boy gets killed, Kamala Harris is on the case and assures us that the DOJ will investigate that as a hate crime. And the killing of her six-year-old son, a senseless act of violence that the Department of Justice is investigating as a hate crime. This is because Democrats ensure justice for their friends, but as far as their ideological opponents are concerned, well... You can go to hell, hell, hell. This kind of moral blindness and egregious double standard is on full display as we see people taking the streets to shout free Palestine at a time where they should be shouting maybe like free the hostages or maybe free Palestine from Hamas. But nonetheless, we have Jews on college campuses who are having to hide away from some of these free Palestine protesters who are not even hiding the ball anymore. When they say free Palestine, they literally mean get rid of Jews. So nonetheless, we see these same students tearing down posters of Jewish kids who are held hostages, and we hear them shouting the device of Israel so that they can protect Muslims. And this bias was also on full display when Brian Karam of Salon wrote an article suggesting Christian nationalism poses a bigger threat to America than Hamas ever will. And I bet you he won't become a foreign correspondent in Palestine and do some of that crack reporting. But let me introduce you to the author of this great article. Brian Karam, who is the White House correspondent for Playboy, is the one doing the writing here. If we had a serious media, you might wonder why Playboy is even invited to the White House in the first place. But then you'd have to ask yourself, why does a nude magazine even have a writer? They're not really known for their groundbreaking articles. But let's analyze the claim. Christians pose a national security threat greater than Hamas. Does Brian point to a single crime that Christians have committed? No. Does he pay attention to the crisis at our southern border or that customs agents claim that our southern border could be a vector for Hamas to enter the country? Of course he doesn't. What we have here on display is not only a superior level of hate and stupidity that only comes from secular humanists, but it's also a reminder of something we've known for a while. Elite institutions are filled with the kind of hate that matters most and that we hear little about. This kind of bias toward people of faith and Christians in particular is not new though. What is, is that people like this writer are more bold than ever before and now they're saying the quiet part out loud. Clearly, Brian feels comfortable saying it. And clearly, culture has shifted. The Overton window is becoming more accepting of hatred and bigotry toward Christians. The only kind of hate and intolerance that is tolerable in society is hate against Christians. Maybe that's why you can't come up with a single name for Christian hate. We have homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, and anti-Semitism, but no Christophobia. Wonder why that is. 
Christ promised that in this world we would be persecuted, but I can't help but believe that perhaps Christians have exacerbated this problem and made it more acceptable when they remain silent. Their passivity and silence has purchased exactly what it was destined to always provide, a world devoid of a conscience and a miserable group of people as a result. If you love people, it might be time to make a change before the persecution you think you experience now pales in comparison to what will happen if people like Brian get his way. And we'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to support IndieThinker with your donations. IndieThinker is a 501c3, and that means that as you get to your end of year giving, we hope that you'll consider giving a tax-deductible donation to IndieThinker to continue the great work that we're doing here. If you've learned anything from the show, if you find the show beneficial, or if you're excited about any of the upcoming things that we're going to be doing as IndieThinker continues to grow with expanding our outreach to new shows and even new feature documentaries, then I highly encourage you to consider giving a tax-deductible gift today. You can do that by going to the link that's on the screen or by going to the description of this podcast if you're listening, where you can find a link for giving. Now, as you do that, please keep in mind that all of your gifts go directly to IndieThinker to help us produce great content like this. So again, if this show has been beneficial to you in any way, please consider giving your tax-deductible gift today. I want to take a moment just to bring back in our intrepid reporter, Brian Karam, and the reporting he did for Salon the other day. If you were following me on Instagram, which I highly encourage, it's a ton of fun. Uh, I've been posting parody posts about this implication that uh, Christians are more dangerous to America than than Hamas will ever be. And uh, I want to take some time at the end of the show to to delve into why I've been doing some parody on those accounts, even though a lot of people haven't necessarily been picking up on the sarcasm on Instagram. I get it. It's a little bit hard on social media to pick up on sarcasm, but also, come on, we need a sense of humor, especially if you're Christians. Uh, Needless to say, at the end of the show, I want to bring that back up and talk about why parody is so important and even why there's a biblical basis for parody. I know it's weird, right? But you got to hang for the end of the show to catch that. But I want to bring at least the article back and deal with it in a substantive fashion, because I think that's important too. The other sentiment outside of people not picking up on sarcasm is, why do we care about this? Let's not even talk about this. This is so ridiculous that it doesn't even deserve our time. And and the problem with that sentiment is that that's kind of the attack that Christians have been taking for years, this kind of wave it away and pretend that it doesn't exist. And as a result of that, I hope you can tell the culture has become more secular and provides less meaningful, truthful, answers to some of what's going on in the world today because as we you know swipe away issues that actually are of importance we find more and more that those important issues then start to become a little bit more mainstream Uh, suffice to say i think it's important that we talk about these things even when we find this kind of ridiculousness again i'll talk more about this at the end of the show however i do have to tell you The fact that this is a ridiculous article to you doesn't mean that it's ridiculous to other people. And then I would also say the fact that this is that ridiculous and somebody's writing for a prominent piece of crap article like Salon, but nonetheless prominent, and saying these kind of things should tip you off to the importance or the severity of 
of, of dealing with these things and making sure that we debunk them, destroy them, do whatever is necessary to make sure that the next time a guy like Brian Karam comes around and writes such ridiculous ga gaslighting bullcrap, he will think twice about it. Now, the way that we can do that is through Christians fully taking on these arguments and destroying them as much as possible, which is what I hope to do today. So let's dig into the article just a little bit and hear what he has to say. So first of all, we get this. Christians want no separation of church and state. Well, of course, this is exactly what terrorists do. They want to introduce their faith into the public square. Now, only a secular moron and then post-enlightenment morally benighted individual would suggest that religion has no place in the West, especially when the West is responsible for destroying slavery in the transatlantic slave trade anyhow, um, as a result of religious revival and religious impulse. And uh, not to mention that the same kind of religious fervor was was brought up in the mouth and on the lips of people like Martin Luther King Jr. So civil rights was made possible because of Christian ideas. Again, when he's talking about, you know, a blank check that was written by our Constitution, he's talking about a Constitution that was written by, yes, deists, but also Christians, but people who had a biblical worldview, regardless of what you want to call them, and were, were you know, delving into the depths of those ideas in order to implement the Constitution. So suffice to say, uh, the foreign crazy idea uh, that we should not uh, allow Christian thinkers to have any input in the way a society is framed uh, is patently stupid. But, but let's, let's give it some, some credit. So here's what he says. The framers taught us that the biggest threat to religious freedom comes from theocrats who try to establish their own sect over everyone else. That's why we have two religion clauses in the first Amendment. Now, let me bring up those two religion clauses for you in the First Amendment, because the, the claim here is, is that separation of church and state was found in our Constitution, and the Constitution says that we're supposed to get rid of religion from anything that we do as, as a nation from a governmental perspective. In order to justify that, let's, let's look at the Constitution and see what it actually says. So he is referring to, obviously, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which says that the government shall not prohibit the free exercise thereof. Of course, the thereof there is the free exercise of religion. So on the first account of the Establishment Clause, totally 100% wrong, the First Amendment guarantees that Christians will be able to practice their religion freely without the confines of Mr. Moron here. And then the second part of it, and the most important part, which is why I saved it for, for last, Congress shall not make a law establishing a religion. So in other words, this is not that Congress will not consult religion or think religiously when establishing laws. It's that Congress will not establish a state church. Because point of fact, the real problem with saying that the framers taught us that the biggest threat to religious freedom comes from theocrats is that that is not actually what the framers taught or thought at all. This is a total ahistorical nonsense. What the framers thought was that people should be able to practice their religion without uh, religious oppression. So the people who fled to America, the original pilgrims, were fleeing for religious freedom, not freedom from theocrats. If anything, they were fleeing monarchy, but not necessarily freeing whatever he would define as a theocrat, which, by the way, is a kind of a side note here. Let me just be fully transparent with you here, as Brian was not. 
Christian nationalism can have a bunch of different meanings, and it's important to clearly define terms, which I will do right now. If you believe that a nation is a set of agreed-upon values, and you agree that those values are not morally neutral, then we must have a conversation as to what values should be celebrated in a society. Traditionally in America, the value system has not wholly been dedicated to, but largely dedicated to Christian values or what is called the Judeo-Christian ethic. It is undeniable that largely our society, even our jurisprudence, even our due process system is built upon scripture. Now, I know we take that for granted in the present because we think we're so damned brilliant that we came up with everything that we do in America all on our own, any of, any of the good stuff anyway. Um, however, uh, what the modernist wants to do, or the postmodernist really, uh, and the secular humanist wants to do is say all the bad things about society, that's Christians, and all the good things, well, that's obviously, that came from the Enlightenment, not realizing that the Enlightenment actually was a great boon for Christianity uh, in the West because it created a kind of thinking class of Christians who helped further science and helped further medicine and all sorts of things. Suffice to say, that's what Christian nationalism is to me. We will get no such help to, uh, from, from Brian Karam because he will never define Christian nationalism, which leaves us to believe that he's simply just talking about all Christians. Suffice to say, going back to his argument about the separation of church and state, let's be really, really clear here. I did an episode about this on the show in the past with where our modern understanding of what separation of church and state actually means, because it's nowhere found in the Constitution at all, make no mistake about it. The reason we think it is, is because in case law, it comes from Ingle v. Vitale, which kind of just was a landmark case that states that the Supreme Court um, ruled that it is unconstitutional for state officials to compose an official school prayer and encourage its recitation in public schools. So ultimately, that's where our understanding, and this happened in the 1960s, that's where our understanding of separation of church, church and state actually comes from. When it's first referred to by Thomas Jefferson, guess who he's talking about in a letter to the Danbury Baptist? He's, he's speaking to them about the fact that the government will not oppress religious people, that it will truly be a republic. It will be a place where people will have freedom of religion. There will be a separation of church and state. There will be a wall between them, not to keep religious people out, but to keep the government out of religion. Now, if you're not totally moral, morally benighted or at least totally ignorant, you will pay attention to this fact because the reality is that whenever government has infringed upon the rights of religious people, totalitarianism is in full effect. But this could be what these people are after at the end of the day. Now, let's go to the second claim here. Uh, he says that Christian nationalists are a group of people who are isolationists. So he says that Christian nationalists are those that seek an isolationist country surrounded by walls, like immigration policy. So Christian nationalists are not only those who disregard the fallacious definition of separation of church and state that's presented by most people who don't know what they're talking about, but they are, they're also people who believe in immigration policy and borders. Oh, okay. So like average Americans then. So needless to say, um, Hamas beheads people burns people alive, rapes and murders civilians, and they've likely crossed into our southern border according to uh, those in California and the U.S. in Customs Border Protection, but Christians who know the Constitution better than Brian Karam and who believe in border policy to try to help secure 
uh, our nation's citizens, they're the real threat to national security. How do you say, I hate Christians, without saying, I hate Christians? Of course, his article is totally stupid. But let me make one final point, because I don't want to just brush it away as just purely stupid. It's also interminably bigoted, and it influences his writings. Now, it's on the surface with a guy like Brian, but for many reporters, many reporters that are on, let's just say, MSNBC, and maybe their name rhymes with Roy Geed, um, many reporters allow their bigot, bigoted preferences to influence the way they report the news all the time. This is important to remind yourself. For the life of me, I don't, un I don't understand how people can still trust the mainstream media. But, but let me make the final and most important comment about this article and why we don't need to just brush it away purely as stupid, even though that it is. Um, because it is also, for those of us who are paying attention, a real indication of culture shift. The Overton window, of course, is that realm of reporting, at least in, in the realm of journalism. It might be in the realm of politics, something slightly different. But in the realm of reporting, the Overton window is, is that idea of what you can report on reasonably that people will accept. Okay, So what I believe this article proves, if anything, is that reporters are becoming more anti-Christian, and it shows us that there is a shift in culture. We've known forever that this is exactly what elitists in our country think about Christian, uh, Christianity. They talk about tolerance, they talk about love, they talk about pronouns, but of course, the moment a person comes and gives their identification as a Christian, well, that's when you can barely tolerate the mere presence of these kind of people. It's a reminder to us as Christians that it's time for us to correct the narrative. It's time for us to push back against it with our own kind of communication. That's what I hope IndieThinker will do. The impulse to wave away things as mere culture war, as just constantly fighting or constantly being negative. Listen, I get it. Um, maybe you need a little nap so that you can restore your energy to get back into the fight. But I hope you understand something. And this is what I'm trying to say at the end of the day. As fatalistic as this may sound, we are losing in culture. The influence of Christianity is becoming a thing of the past. I hope this will, will maybe not scare us into waking up, but at least I hope it will startle us a little bit to understand that this is what, it, what happens when the church becomes eerily silent on the things that matter most. Let me just put it to you this way, because you might say to yourself, well, all of this talk, what does it really accomplish? Christians don't need to be all talk. We need to be more action. And it's not about what we stand against. It's what we stand up for. Well, listen, if you don't know what to stand against, you're not really standing for, uh, for anything. But pushing that aside, the whole point is this, is that you cannot truly become effective at doing before you become effective at thinking. And part of thinking is clear communication. We as Christians need to be using our social media accounts. We need to be using whatever outlets and influence we, we have, maybe even doing Bible studies, to become as passionate and as clear thinkers on the subjects that matter most as we possibly can. That is the only way for this kind of nonsense to stop. And maybe just one final point about this. 
If you can't condemn what Brian Karam said here, then I don't want to hear anything you have to say about social justice. I don't want to hear anything you have to say about Islamophobia and what's going on in society. I don't want to hear anything you have to say about trans hate. Because it could be that social justice for you is just a sword to try to put some emphasis behind your, your intellectual priors rather than to actually stand up for people who need help. And that'll bring us to our next story because Kamala Harris is on the job. She is ready to, after her, you know, on the heels of her last great victory with the southern border, she is ready to tackle Islamophobia in America. Um, and so she's been nominated by the president to head up a council that will investigate Islamophobia. Now, our city streets can be filled with people who are spewing Jewish hate and asking for the state of Israel to no longer exist. But if anybody utters a single word that Kamala Harris deems unworthy, she will come for you. But uh, let's just see how effective she's going to be, right? Because um, on the southern border front, not really an unparalleled success. Now, according to this news article, from January 20th to 2021 through January 19th, 2023, the Biden administration took 403 immigration-related actions, according to calculations by the Migration Policy Institute, putting it on track to soon overtake 472 immigration-related executive actions. MPI counted for all four years of the Trump administration. So, real quick, so the Biden administration has softened immigration to the tune of 403 from January 19th, uh, sorry, from January 20th, 2021 to January 19th, 2023. They took 403 actions. Now compare that to 472 in all four years of Donald Trump. So as you can see, um, Kamala and Biden are, uh, you know, record-breaking pace. Now that record doesn't stop there because they're also breaking records left and right in terms of how many migrants um, uh, or immigrants are sneaking through our southern border. So it says this, Biden makes border history with the most immigrant encounters in August ever recorded. The August number surpassed the record of 302,000, that previous record, 302,412 from December 22. The 304, 162 is between five and 10 times higher than the average monthly total seen during the Obama and Trump administrations. So even Obama wasn't as bad as Biden is on the border. So as you can see, they have been absolutely killing it on the southern border. And this is all due to Kamala Harris's success. And now she is taking on her next task to tackle Islamophobia. Here's her telling us about this important job. For years, Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. As a result of the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen an uptick in anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic incidents across America, including the brutal attack of a Palestinian-American woman who is Muslim and the killing of her six-year-old son. A senseless act of violence that the Department of Justice is investigating as a hate crime. And so today, I am proud to announce the Biden-Harris administration will develop our nation's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. This strategy will be a comprehensive and detailed plan to protect Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim from hate, bigotry and violence. I think it was John Adams who said the vice president is like the stupidest job anyone can ever have. Um, 
you decide for yourself. I'll just report. Needless to say, let's look at some of the claims in that, uh, in that speech she just gave. So she wants to condemn all forms of hate. I mean, look at these students right now beating on the glass, holding up signs, threatening Jewish students at Cooper Union. Look at these students that are locked inside of a library at the same school, these Jewish students, because there are free Palestine protesters, maybe one might call them terrorists because they're trying to insist on promoting terror for these Jewish students, but they're beating on the door of this library uh, as these students are having to hold up in there and protect themselves. So she says, Kamala Harris does, she wants to protect people from hate and bigotry. Sorry, no, you can't do that. You can't even do that with violence because the Democratic Party is constantly trying to be soft on crime and making it more unsafe to live in America than it probably has been in recent memory. But, but also, it's kind of hard to protect people from hate. Uh, what will you have to do to actually keep people from being hated in society? It's not the government's job, nor is it possible for the government to truly do that, unless, of course, they want to get totalitarian. What they do want to do is just simply pander to people. They want to pander to people on their side of the aisle who are much more likely to support Palestine right now than Israel, while there are 233 hostages being held in tunnels in Palestine. But are they pandering to the right group of people? Um, is Islamophobia as dangerous as we are told it is? Well, here's some numbers on anti-Semitism. The director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, said that 60% of all hate crimes, 60% of all hate crimes in America is directed toward Jews. Now, I don't have the numbers for you on how much the remainder is toward Muslims, but I don't know if you're a mathematician or if you're great at calculus, but 40 would be less than 60, which would mean anti-Semitism is a much greater problem than Islamophobia is in the United States. However, I don't think Kamala Harris anytime soon, even though her husband is Jewish, just like Joe Biden is Catholic, uh, I don't think Kamala Harris is going to undertake uh, investigating hate towards Jews anytime soon. So here's the final point of all of this. Democrats have confirmation bias, as we all do. But when their confirmation bias reveals itself, we should see where it lies. They have to keep up appearances or they actually have to change. They have to realize that, hey, maybe we have to condemn what Hamas has done and we have to realize that Palestinians that are innocent right now are suffering as a result of Hamas. Yes, there are Israeli bombs going into areas in the Gaza where civilians are, but maybe that might have something to do with the fact that Hamas leaders, while they sit in Qatar and drink Mai Tais, are demanding and commanding their civilians stay in the area to become martyrs and to endure the fire and to stand up for Allah by dying, like all the stupid things that these guys say. Um, so yes, Hamas is is directing civilians to stay in the area because this is exactly what they want as they sit in their billion dollar mansions. They want people to suffer and die so that they can continue to rake in cash and Israel can look like the bad guy. So they're using these people as, as their shields. I mean, the Iron Dome for Hamas is hospitals, civilian areas, because they all dwell in tunnels. They live in tunnels because they have an Iron Dome too, except it's not a shield to protect from missiles. It's a bunch of civilians and it's a, bu a bunch of apartments where people live. 
because they don't care about civilian casualties whatsoever. Now, the Democrats can't admit this. They can't come full on out and say it. The Free Palestinian Movement is a movement that we will be investigating for hate, hatred toward Jews and sympathies toward terrorism. They won't say that. They would rather investigate moms and dads at school board meetings and say, white supremacy is the greatest threat that America is facing right now. Seriously. When we have tens of thousands of people protesting in the city streets, basically calling for genocide of the Jews, color me a little skeptical, but I don't think we are facing white supremacy as the greatest uh, national terror threat in America right now. Perhaps it might be the people that you say need the most protection right now. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't protect people from, from uh, any kind of violence. Of course, that's true. But isn't it odd that the people who need the most protecting right now are not the ones that are being protected by Democrats? Uh, maybe that there's an election season coming up and everything that they do is just in service to that. Well, let's jump into our final segment, Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. The past couple of days on my Instagram account, I've been posting parodies about what the Salon article uh, suggested that Christian nationalists are a greater threat than Hamas will ever be to America. Now, I think this is obviously patently ridiculous and deserves to be made fun of. So I've gone to the trouble of making posts that say, you know, Christian nationalists and Hamas terrorists are similar in the same way that Hamas uses hospitals as a shield. Um, Christians use hospitals in America. You travel around American cities and you can see Christian names all over the hospitals. What are those Christians up to? And then, of course, we know that Hamas has no compunction about absolutely attacking and killing violently small children. Uh, you can say this is AI-generated if you want, but I wouldn't so quickly wave away the atrocities done by these wicked men and then also be seen as being in cahoots and defending them so quickly when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, especially if you read the preamble, of the Hamas charter that they want to exterminate all Israelis. That includes men, women, and children, by the way, just in case you were wondering, and, and, and elderly grandparents and Holocaust survivors. All of, of Israel is what, is what Hamas wants to totally exterminate. So suffice to say, we know they have no compunction about killing kids. But if you go to churches around America, you'll see that they do something fishy with kids too. I mean, taking water and dousing small children with it. Are they trying to drown those children? These Christians will sit back and applaud this kind of thing going on in churches and even the parents as these priests attempt to drown these children with water. Um, th th these parents will sit back and laugh and, and smile and be joyful over the occasion. You know, that Christians need to need to be watched very carefully. So needless to say, I've gone on and on and, uh, about this because, you know, I like dad jokes, perhaps. A lot of people didn't get the jokes but, um, and, and thought that I was actually being serious. But maybe that's an indication just of how ridiculous our society is today. And we need to mock it all the more. But I want to give you a Christian response to parody, to comedy, and to mocking. Uh, before I do that, I want to give you what I think is a brilliant joke about atheism. I'm going to cut out some of the cuss words for those of us out there who can't stomach that, but, uh, but you'll still get the gist. Check it out. Some people think God created the universe. Some people think nothing created the universe, which is the funniest guess. <laughs> and the nothing people make fun of the God people. They say God doesn't exist. I'm like, okay, maybe. But you know what definitely doesn't exist? Nothing. That's the defining characteristic of nothing, is that it doesn't exist. 
So what are we talking about? Either you think it's God, something you can't see, touch, taste, photograph, and science can't prove, or you think it's nothing, something you can't see, touch, taste, photograph, and science can't prove. But I think we can all agree, if nothing, if your nothing sometimes spontaneously erupts into everything, that's a pretty god magical nothing, you guys. <laughs> and ask, ask the nothing people, what happens when you die? They'll tell you, nothing. You go into nothing. I'm like, you mean you merge back with your creator? That's heaven. And so as you can see, that kind of humor is exactly what people need to make them think. That's the best anti-atheist joke I think I have ever heard in my life. So the question comes, why mockery? Well, Thomas More said this. He said, the devil, that proud spirit cannot endure to be mocked. In other words, mock the devil because he is so proud. Now, here's a couple of reasons why parody and mockery is so important for Christians, and I hope we can gain a sense of humor after all this is said and done. Mockery and parody and jokes at the expense of the ridiculousness of society and at the ridiculousness of the Salon article are in order because it might mean that we are happy warriors. It might mean that we are joyfully fighting the amount of Christians who say they are so sick and tired with the mainstream news and so sick and tired of the culture war and so sick and tired of everything that's going on are doing very little to actually change it. They are quick to complain over what's, what's happening and they are quick to complain that we're paying attention to it but very slow to actually make a difference. Happy warriors do so joyfully and gleefully. That's why I think sometimes we need a good dose of humor and we need some, some ability to mock. Now, the second thing is this, is that mockery exposes the ridiculousness of what's going on. But it doesn't just expose it to make fun of it. It exposes it in the hope to demean it so that we can finally change it. If it is ridiculous, and the Salon article is in this case, it's my hope that you will pay attention to that and then say, well, what can we do to make sure that this kind of ridiculous doesn't occupy our society? I don't want to live in an unserious society. I want to live in a good, healthy society, and I want my kids to grow up in that too. Well, perhaps you need to not just simply protect your kids, but you need to equip your kids with a good sense of humor so that they can mock the ridiculousness of our left-leaning society. So I, this kind of goes in cahoots with that. that the third thing is, is that, that mockery is a thermometer for culture. If, if we can mock the right things, it shows that society is on the right track. If society does not find it funny or even finds it acceptable, then we might be well on our way to the kind of insanity that we saw in like the Holodomor and, and that we saw in Nazi Germany. And I'm, you may say to yourself, this is hyperbole, but please pick up a history book. I promise they don't bite. You'll find an eerie similarity with the bloodiest century in human history and the fact that they're all accompanied with religious persecutions, usually of Jews and Christians. Maybe that's the real reason Marx attacked faith. Rather than numbing you to the need for revolution, maybe Christianity was hated by Marx because it was the only stopgap, the remedy for the kind of craziness that he wanted to foist over on our society. For those who want to demolish everything, Christianity stands in their way. If that's true, you better hope for the flourishing of faith in America and abroad. That's why modern militant atheism is a lesson in hate more so than a discussion on objective truth. I mean, militant atheists don't sit around just pondering physics 
um, and, and wondering how stupid the Bible is and how people can really believe that stuff. Really, they just have a hatred toward the Bible because if they were really honest skeptics, they might have to suggest things like, well, the Bible is totally ridiculous except for the fact that, well, I mean, it does have some things that are scientifically accurate. I mean, it does prescribe hand washing thousands of years before germs were even, even investigated. And I mean, it is totally ridiculous and mythological, except for the historical accuracy. I mean, we read the Dead Sea Scrolls and then we realize that the Old Testament, as far as the Dead Sea Scrolls are concerned, is almost entirely accurate to the Bible that we hold in our hand. And I mean, it is totally superstitious, but it, there is some literal, you know, some literacy accuracy in it because there's cohesion across the whole Bible and the way it's a unified text is quite frankly, kind of interesting. And then there's, of course, the fact that Christianity and its Bible is totally ridiculous, except for, you know, archaeology keeps on coming around and showing us that every find confirms what we actually see in the Bible. There hasn't been a single archaeological find that has um, undermined what the Bible says. And then finally, there's this, you know, the whole thing about maybe personal accuracy um, or personal impact. The Bible's changed my life. And it can change yours too. Now you may say, Reed, that's the weakest evidence that you gave in the whole line of things. And I actually think it's the most powerful because we live in a nihilistic society that desperately needs hope. And we need more places where that hope can be found. And where are you hearing people saying, my free Palestine protest changed my life. It saved my marriage. It helped me get rid of drugs. Where are you finding leftism actually truly helping people the way Christianity has for ages and generations? Maybe we should start taking our soul a little more seriously. And if we do, we'll be forced to start considering Christianity. And of course, we'll start taking the left a lot less serious. And social media wouldn't be full of the kind of vile pro-Palestinian, uh, you know, Israel hate that we see perhaps if we were taking our soul more seriously. But it's best we do whatever is necessary, even if it means mocking, if we can turn the ship around because it's desperately needed. And one final point here, if we can mock, if we can ridicule ideas that deserve to be mocked, it might just mean that not only are we happy warriors? But we're happy warriors because we're close to winning. If victory is in sight, and I believe it is, then we can finally smile and we can walk to the finish line with some joy in our heart. Constant defeat is depressing, but victory is worth it all. So that's why we should take Thomas More's words and we should mock anybody with an anti-Christian, anti-biblical bias as much as we possibly can within the confines of scripture, of course. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God.